Today's wild chat is with Amanda French, who is well known for documenting and writing Bob Irwin's book, which is called The Last Crocodile Hunter, A Father and Son Legacy. Amanda talks about her time with Bob, their cool adventures and their mission to help educate and be an advocate for Australian wildlife. Amanda is also a media and communication specialist where she gets to travel the world spotlighting projects and the work going on by people trying to make a difference. So I'll tell you what, get your cup of tea ready because this episode will take you on a little bit of a journey around some of Australia's habitats and ecosystems and how Amanda got to writing Bob Irwin's book. Stay tuned. Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? What about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans. Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent, stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following wild chats. I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course the habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following wild chats. Awesome. Amanda French. Hello. Hello, Jodie. How are you? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Oh, it's looking really colourful in the background there. I feel like I I'm am. in the I've, wet tropics. I've got a cassowary, got uh, some sugar gliders there, a crocodile there. Oh, there. I've got another cassowary. <laughs> Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for coming on for a wild chat today. Pretty That's cool. okay. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime. I've been actually really excited to get you on so I could I can find out all the good juicy goss about everything that you're up to and that you have done, by the way. I forget it all now. It feels like so long ago. But I was going to say to you quickly, you know, Owen, who you interviewed a yeah. while ago, I didn't realise he was working on coin with the turtles at Queen Island, which is where I used to be. And we're going up there in, well, actually next Friday night to take over from the caretakers for five weeks. So I think he comes over every Saturday. So it's interesting to meet him because I'm taking Flynn up with me as well. So Flynn's first time working with me on a wildlife project. So I'm really stoked and excited. Awesome. Owen Owen is amazing. He's like a little pocket rocket. He's just like, go, go, go. That's cool. Yeah, they were were raving about him the other day about their volunteer team and they were talking about Owen, so it'd be lovely to meet him. Yeah, so good. Oh, that's fantastic. And you're heading over to stay there for five weeks, did you say? Yeah, yeah. So going back, it was a while ago now, it was actually one of the first stops on a bit of a wildlife trip, Bob sent me on for the foundation and I was stopping in to meet all of these caretakers and people who had done amazing things with wildlife projects and it was one of the first stops and after that we kept heading up north up to me where you are and I got a call from them saying would you guys come back and look after the island for six months so we ended up living there for six months looking after wallabies and turtles and gliders and echidnas it was one of the best things I've ever done so it'll be nice to go back there wow that sounds Mm. amazing yeah, yeah, it was such a such an awesome project. So good. Yeah, so you have done lots of different projects though, Amanda. So for everyone listening, Amanda, oh, I'm sure you can tell a lot of the story yourself, Amanda, but I actually met you when you were writing Bob Irwin's book. And I actually have to say it's one of the best wildlife books I have read. And the journey that you actually took us on for Bob's journey himself, I was crying, then I was laughing, then I had my (laughs) mouth wide open. I'm like, what? He did what with the crocodile in the car? And just like, yeah, just that his whole journey of Bob Irwin was mind-blowing. And that's what I would love for you to share with everyone. But maybe you could fill us in a little bit because you didn't just wake up one day and just be like, right, I'm going to write Bob's book. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where have you been? And then please share us how you got 
to write Bob Irwin's book. Well, yeah, I still don't really know how all the pieces connected because I think it was just one of those things that was organic in the end and was kind of meant to be. But I met Bob, I used to work at Australia Zoo, so that was where I guess I was infused with understanding the Irwin family and about Steve. And I was employed there probably two months after Steve's passing to work in the marketing team and establish Steve Irwin Day. So that was really interesting because we had to put on this global event. It was an unlimited budget, so there was a huge expectation from the zoo. And through that, we had to represent Steve and his work with wildlife at gala dinners and zoo events and a national sort of fundraiser. So that was, I really walked away from that job feeling like I knew him, which was really strange because I never met him. But along that journey, I'd met Bob a couple of times at the zoo and he had no idea who I was. I was just one of the thousand staff that was there in the end. And after I worked at the zoo, I was working with the whales in Harvey Bay, which is my hometown. And we really needed to raise awareness of the fact that humpbacks were added to the Japanese whaling quota in the southern um, whale sanctuary. And I really needed someone who was a name in wildlife, but also someone who had a really strong voice and a conservation focus. And I reached out to Bob and said, you don't know who I am. I know who you are. And I was wondering if you would come along this event and help raise awareness about the whales and he wrote back I was really surprised he wrote back and said I'd love to be involved and the next thing he came up and we had this wonderful time took him whale watching had the best encounter and after that he said whatever you're involved with I want to be involved with too so that's sort of how it started the relationship and then from there it took off we went on every adventure together and yeah ended up writing his book which is probably the last thing on the list but it was an important thing on the list as well. Absolutely. So tell me how that came about. Like, were you guys sitting there having a good old cup of tea? And then, like, how did the idea of writing the book come up? It was in my mind for a long time. So everywhere we went, I just extracted and extracted and extracted information. And when you're in the Land Cruiser with him for so many kilometres at a time, just chatting and picking his brain and then going, where is this information going? It's just going to sit in my brain. And I'd often come home and write a few things down because I thought it's just so interesting and I want to remember that for me. And then we started doing these crop camps where we started getting some of his old crop research team together. And just for a like-minded get-together, we were going up to Cape York and camping. And everyone used to get in my ear and say, Amanda, you need to do something. You need to do something and record his story. And he had absolutely no interest. He basically said to me, no one will read it. No one will be interested. What did he say? I'm just like a tiny grain of sand out there. That's what he said. And then I realised someone had actually started to write his book many years ago, but it went along a different journey and it didn't represent him in a way that he felt he wanted to be represented. So that never took off. It never happened. I know he spent a lot of time telling his story at that time and it sort of led to nowhere. So I, I sat down one day and I guess I always thought maybe a documentary or maybe something else. But we sat down together one day and I said, please just let me have a go and see where we go with it. And he was just kind of like, I don't know why you want to do this. It's and so then we approached, I know, I know. And he's like, yeah. I approached the publisher as well and I thought they're not even going to give me a chance, you know. They're just going to go, who are you? You've got nothing to show that you've done before as far as publishing anything. But I just said to them, look, I've got access to the stories and I've spent so much time with him and I've basically got about three quarters of a book already because we've just spent so much time together. And they basically said, sounds great, happy to go with it, but it's due in six months. So that was sort of a real, yeah turning point to go well we better pull finger out and do something about this wow that's amazing and for me being in the wildlife industry we know how bob sort of says yeah i'm just a little grain of sand you know amongst Mm -hmm. the everything else there but I don't think people like Bob understand or maybe he does just how much of an inspiration he is to someone like myself you know I admired the as I was growing up like Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall and then when the Irwins came along then it definitely was Steve but behind Steve was Bob Mm. but when you read his story everything started with Bob and Mm. it was sort of like everything, like people overlooked that, Mm. you know, it started with Bob and the way you wrote that book was, it was like, I was, I couldn't turn the pages fast enough and the journey through it. And, and I was like, wow, I actually in the moment realized, like you brought it to us that it is Bob. Mm. It was him. 
And then obviously Steve took the baton there from Bob, but he is, is actually really important. And as someone who's been in the industry for 20 years, for me, I now look up to Bob so much because he is humble, but he's also so important with what he created. He created that. And here he is in the background just wanting to do what he wanted to do, but not realizing the impact he was making for everyone else who continues to hold the baton. You know, mm-hmm. like he didn't just pass it to Steve. He's passed it to all of us wildlife educators and people who just want to go out and learn more about wildlife, but also do something about it. It doesn't matter what you do, even if it's just at home, you mm-hmm. know. So, so to me, that realisation, and I remember the moment I was reading the book, just going, wow, it, far out, it actually started with Bob. <laughs> And that's the thing about him, he's frustratingly humble, like to his detriment sometimes. He's, that's what you love about him is that there's no ego whatsoever. I've never met someone as down to earth as him, but also as knowledgeable. Like if you were out in the bush, like you could sit in the car first. Honestly, sometimes like he doesn't listen to the radio when we go driving. So it's just silent for just so Perfect. many kilometres on the road. But then when you get somewhere and you get to the end journey with him and he sees the the animal that he's gone to see or he's showing you something. I remember the first time he put a crocodile in my hand and he was that stoked for me in that moment to see how that felt for me. And you could feel that. It it Mm. radiated across the boat that the smile on his face just to share that with all of us. And that's what other people probably don't get to experience. And that was like so important for us with the younger generation of people like yourself or the croc team or whoever that sort of followed in his footsteps. It was so important not to let those stories go with him because they mm. just they mean so much to be shared and to understand what impact he did have. It, and, you know, there's a sign up in his house and it's someone had framed the original crocodile catching permit that him and Steve had back in the early days. And there's a sign at the bottom which said thank you and a, an acknowledgement to Bob and Steve Irwin for inspiring millions of people across mm-hmm. the world about nature conservation. And that was such a good starting point for me with the book is to go that quote is so true that it wasn't just Steve Irwin, the famous person we saw on the television, behind the scenes and the backbone of him was his father and he was such an integral part of his life. Mm. So that was a really important part for me to get across is to share just how much he was part of that um, journey and where it did all begin because the cameras didn't really start rolling until Steve turned 30, about 30 years old. Mm. They would had a lifetime of doing what they were doing first and foremost to then become famous for that and I think it's different now because there's platforms being set up with people who want to be Steve Irwin. People are starting Facebook pages or starting documentaries where they're starting with the platform, but this is a platform that followed them. And I think that's so important and rare that there's not many people like that left. No, not at all. Mm. Not at all. So it must have been pretty amazing just traveling along with Bob. I mean, I know what it feels like when I leave home, we put our swag in the back and then we head out west of Cairns here. I love heading out to sort of like Chiligo area, that feeling of that dry heat, the feeling of the dirt in your feet and just even the the annoying, annoying buzzy flies around. Tell us a little bit about all the journeys because I know like it gets really hot up here. So you must, and you travel a lot more up north with him. That's yeah. where all the, the cool animals are, I believe. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your journey. And I don't know, are you able to sh- share with us some special moments that you had with Bob? Yeah, sure. So I guess there was a particular property up north that was really close to his heart. So we would go there. I was never lucky enough to venture to some of the original research places that the boys talked about in the book like the crop team and you know hearing their stories in person too it's like a dream of mine now to go there Mm. and also to get Bob back there that's still a dream of mine I know he's sort of hung up his boots now and he's pretty adamant that he's enjoying a nice break but we're all still determined to sort of maybe push him for one last trip out north and selfishly we all want to go but what happened when we started traveling around together was Bob's foundation was in its infancy so he set up his own wildlife foundation And he started to get requests from genuine people out there on the front line of wildlife who needed a hand. So they might have been a lady saving a cassowary corridor, but she wasn't getting any traction in the media just with her own name or or whatever. But it was a genuine reason that people needed to know about it to protect that. But Bob, because of who he was and the name he had, which 
he, he had this amazing platform to be able to go to the media and, and to get people to listen, which he hated that. He hated the media attention, but it was in the animal's favour that we were able to do that. So from that moment on, we started to get a lot of requests from people all over Australia basically saying, I've got this situation, can you come and visit? So we would get in the car and go down and check it out. My job was, I guess, to help raise awareness with Bob by getting in touch with the media and whatever else. And along the way, we just met this network of incredibly amazing Australians which just looked up to him in the same way you're talking about, in the same way that everybody who meets him feels. And I just had to find a way to capture that. And I guess that's where some of those stories were told to me on the road, which was even more special. So most of what you read in the book wasn't my own wordsmithing. He is such a fantastic storyteller and his memory is incredible. Like the way he'll tell a story is as if you were actually there. So it was a matter of putting the dictaphone on, pressing record, and then writing it all word for word down, putting it in order of his life. And it's his words. It's his profound description of Mm. his life, which is quite incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen some photos that you have posted and there is some in the book as well. Mm. But you actually got to sit there in the book, not, not just the big long drives, which are silent mm. <laughs> with yeah. no music on. And that's the way I like to go for a drive. No music. Let's yeah. turn the windows down. Let's, let's feel nature even as, yeah. you're, as you're journeying along. But I can imagine, and, and I have seen some of those photos where you guys are sitting there and you're either sitting on a rock and you're having a cup of tea or you're sitting in the bush, sitting around the fire. Those moments must have been pretty special. I mean, I'm extremely envious of those kind of moments. Yeah, I'm envious of myself, really, like <laughs> looking back because he, like I said, he has, you know, he's not as active these days as he was when we were travelling sort of on a yeah, regular basis. But, yeah, there were some particular moments where you also had to pick your moments. I never actually planned what I was going to ask because I how do you understand someone's life story and tell it in six months? It just seemed like an incredibly difficult challenge. Where do you even start? Because I did only know so much about him. I didn't know much about his childhood or anything like that. So it was just when the moment was right, the the right story would come out. And it was this really interesting experience of one day we broke down coming home from that station, the cattle station up in Cape York and we took a wrong turn and we'd been travelling for hours on this dirt road and he was getting quite cranky and we both realised we needed a break. And so we just stopped overnight in Laura on the McLeod River. And so we put out our chairs, had a really nice swim, just the two of us sitting there with a cup of tea. And he turned to me and he said, would you like me to tell you about the time I lost Lynn, which was his his wife who unfortunately passed away and I just thought okay now's the time but I didn't want to push him on prompt him to some of those more difficult conversations they came from him when he was ready and they came at the most perfect times because we were sitting there and it was so such an emotional thing to be so intimately in the middle of nowhere and sitting there hearing this story and word for word he told it to me in the most beautiful way including remembering such incredible details like the spider in the spider Yes. And so the story, as it's told in the book, is exactly as he told it to me. And it, it was, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, from a storyteller's perspective, I was like, this is gold. This story is gold to end with all of those details about mm. how the spider taught you about, you know, life and death and everything else. It was really quiet. Yeah, it still gets to me. Yeah, I've got the goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> that was the moment, I still remember the moment of reading that. Look, you, mm. you put tears in my eyes. I know. The moment of reading that and I was just bawling my eyes out mm. but then at the same time my hand was over my mouth which was open just in like awe and, and also freaking out about the spider but then the <laughs> message that came along with that, I was like, oh, my goodness, wow. But that was another part of that was um, at the end of one of our wildlife camps up north and some of the other team had already left it was just Bob and I left and it used to be so hot like in the middle of the day you couldn't even sit there in the chair and he'd be there drinking cups of hot tea one after the other and I'd be thinking how are you doing this and we were just sitting in the water I went down to just actually I went down to shave my legs in about I don't know two weeks of water that was all that was left it was just so dry and he came down and I had the iPad going and he came down and he goes, oh, what's this rubbish? And I was listening to John, Jack Johnson. And I was like, what rubbish? I really like him. And um, he goes, I suppose you don't have anybody, Holly. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't even know who he is. But, I mean, he got me wrong because I, I love all the old music. And so I put that on. And the song that came on triggered him to remember that that was a band that 
him and Lynn loved and that was reminded him of the good old days and I just thought we've never listened to music we've never had the radio on I didn't know that about him but it gave Mm -hmm. me such an insight into that story as well it was just so many beautiful moments Mm, absolutely and I'm sure there is so many more that you would just keep close to your own heart you know you haven't kind of revealed or don't want to because moments like that especially as a wildlife educator and conservationist like yourself there Mm. are times when you don't necessarily want to share everything and I think it's just so beautiful Mm. the book that you did put forth to everyone and I say to anyone that asks me tell me a really good wildlife book. So Mm. um, can you hold it up for me? So then it's on the screen here. So Bob Irwin with Amanda French, (laughs) The Last Crocodile Hunter, A Father and Son Legacy. And it really is. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, This is um, in the front of this. This is my first copy I got. So everyone who was involved in writing it, like participating in the story from the good old days, wrote a little message in the front. So I'll probably die if I ever lost this copy. It's really special. That is really special. I've actually got three copies and I've only got one copy left, so I need to track down who's borrowed them. (laughs) Oh, no. I know. I don't want to lose those ones. But one thing, when I met Bob, it was, you know, when you finally meet someone who is an inspiration for you, and you're like, oh, they're not going to want to speak to me. Like, I'm just like, you know, thinking like, mm. like Bob, I'm just like this little old person in the corner, but he just has so much time to listen to our stories or our concerns or any advice he can give us. And it was beautiful over the years where he helped us here in North Queensland to try and, you know, educate a little bit more about saltwater crocodiles and the importance of them within the river systems and so forth. So that was a very magical moment when he came up here and spent so Mm -hmm. much time. And then I've seen him also do it with Jenny Gilbert with the sea turtles and then Karen Coombs with the tree kangaroos being that inspiration and spokesperson for our wildlife, but to keep inspiring us, to keep Mm -hmm. doing the job that we're doing Mm -hmm. um, is so important. But Amanda, what else do you do or you're working towards and within wildlife conservation or where do you see yourself as an educator anyway? It's hard because I'll be honest, since Bob has retired, I do feel a little lost because he was my ultimate wildlife buddy and we really did, you know, push each other and help each other and whatever else. I mean, even some of the international wildlife projects, he was always so fascinated in and I could ring him and tell him about one of the elephant or mm. he'd get involved or get on the radio if we needed him to do anything. So without that, it is a bit hard. And it's not just me that feels that. I think a lot of the younger teams from the foundation, mm. since he's hung up his boots, all feel a little bit like that because he was, we, we joke that he was the Dalai Lama of wildlife for us. <laughs> and yeah, we are still wanting to all come together. And I think that's my most important thing is finding a way that we can all stay connected because through that connection that he did create, and he, mm. he doesn't even realise that himself. That's the beauty of it. People are helping each other. So Wildlife HQ on the Sunshine Coast, they're helping Tina and the Wombat. And Jenny's helping Ma get the tree kangaroo lady and you're connected mm. to the tree kangaroo people. And it's just this beautiful thing where people are still helping each other and working together. And I think that's such a lovely legacy to leave behind. It's such a grassroots thing to leave behind as well. Mm. But yeah, still thinking of ways that we can hold on to that and keep his legacy alive mm. in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because his foundation isn't operating anymore. So when he hung up his boots, he hung up the foundation as well. Yeah. Yes, but otherwise you mentioned Bono the elephant before. Yeah. Now I started to hear about you also through the project and the awareness that you were bringing about what was happening there. Can you just share a little bit about that story? Because I just think it's beautiful. Mm. Yes, so Bono was an 18-month-old Sumatran elephant and there's only around 1,500 Sumatran elephants left in the wild. And it came up that there was a starving elephant in the middle of the jungle that her family had been coached and killed and she was there without milk replacement formula and a really hard thing to get. There's only one company in the world that supplies it and it costs about $3,000 a month and an Indonesian village can't afford that. Mm. So we stepped in and luckily enough through Bob, it was again thanks to Bob getting out in the media and talking about it, we were able to fundraise enough money for her milk replacer for a year and that was going back now eight years ago. So we still have regular contact. We've been, luckily for her, she has grown into a healthy, strong elephant. We have a lot to do with her camp still 
and keep an eye on what's happening over there with deforestation and palm oil. And the coal mine is threatening the camp at the moment. So there's always, seems like every year there's a new threat for Bonner. Yeah. Um, but it is hard because working with the Indonesian authorities is difficult. They, they often don't want us to be involved. So our idea with it is just to keep an eye on what happens over there and media where needed. I've been really lucky the Australian media has supported her ongoing. I mean, she's been on Australian Story and in front page of the Courier Mail. So yeah, she's a, one lucky little elephant. But I think the most beautiful thing about that story is how the village has changed their perspective. When we mm. first got there, she was just thought of as cattle. They didn't care about her. They thought elephants were a pest because they do come and damage their crops. But nowadays she's become the icon of their village and they've mm. created an elephant care community and the villagers are trying everything in their power now to protect that little pocket of forest left for her. So that's a really positive thing to now have. Yeah, what do you think changed with that? Like, So you're saying that the village has sort of changed their perception of that, but what do you believe is the shift that happened there? Like what got their attention in regards to that? What got their attention was that the world was watching on. So ah. when we started to go back, we would take all the newspaper articles. We would explain to the, we would go around to all the village schools and some of these are really, really remote schools, like literally lean-tos in the middle of nowhere. And we would take an interpreter and tell them, you know, we don't have elephants in Australia. And they were really shocked to even hear that, you know. <laughs> um, you've only got some Martian elephants here. And this is how much money has been raised from people around the world, which to them just seemed like an enormous amount of money, you know, when they can't even feed their own babies and we're raising money for formula for a baby elephant. It just seemed absurd to them. They thought it was hilarious. But once they started to realise how famous she was and how important <laughs> she was to the rest of the world, they thought that was pretty great and they've yeah, really taken to her story and they wear T-shirts and sell merchandise with her name on it. It's really been quite an interesting journey. Wow. That's mm. actually, yeah, that is really interesting. And definitely the, what was I going to say, like the, the perception shift came about <laughs> with fame. Like they're like, what? Hang on a minute. But also the realisation yeah. that they're not found everywhere else, that the, mm. you know, the elephants mm. are only in their backyard and that comes down to, well, one, they're very remote mm. and then how are they meant to really know that? But you guys coming in have made such a huge impact for that village and then now given them also an income stream <laughs> mm. to be able to raise some money that helps Bono but also probably helps them as a village as well. So yeah. you know, that was a win-win for both sides there. A very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. Yeah, now you went back, didn't you? Yeah, I, I mean, we try and go back once a year. It's a shame because of COVID, I'm really concerned because the longer you leave it, I mean, anything can happen in a year there, as in our Mahout friends are getting older and that's their relationship that we have. We don't have a great relationship with the Indonesian government. They didn't appreciate the media awareness um, we put on, so they've made it very difficult at times to get back there. But we will still do whatever it takes to ensure that we can help. Mm. So if anything ever happened again, I mean, there is more. There, there is. There's been other calves since that need milk replacement formula, mm. and they haven't survived. It is really hard to replace a mum's milk, you know, like in a natural, mm. yeah, sustenance that they need in the wild. So she was really lucky, I feel. But yeah, I really hope it doesn't happen again. But I know, unfortunately, it will because palm oil is encroaching so badly over there. And that's what the government really didn't want us to try to spotlight on. Well, that's yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. One, you're an outsider who've come in to showcase the country isn't looking after their own animals in their own backyard, but also you may reveal more of what is really actually happening over there. So, yeah, you can totally see how they don't want you in. No way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I've got a big black mark against my name at, at the immigration office over there. I'm sure I do somewhere down the track. But it's a badge of honour, yeah. Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't stopped us getting there yet. So, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's really sad. I mean, you were going to come with us a couple of years ago and I'm yep. sure you will at some stage. But, I mean, when I take groups now, I really have to 
instill in them that this is not a positive yep. experience. You're no. not coming along to see the beautiful elephants in the natural environment. I mean, mm. they they wear chains and they have bullhooks and it's just the reality of that's how they manage elephants in Sumatra. I don't agree with it at all, but it's the way it is. And in order to have some, to make some difference there, mm. you've got to just go with whatever happens. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to go and see. It is definitely. I went. I actually went to Sumatra back in. Poor, showing my age here. Uh, going back <laughs> 19, 18, 19 years ago, and yeah. it was very confronting. But one thing that I've realised over the twenty years of working in wildlife and education and doing projects and stuff and travelling the world, I think it's really important. This is my perception only and, mm. and opinion. I think it's really important that we understand also why say, for example, villages are going to be working in the palm oil plantations because they need to put food on the table. And when I became right. a parent, I yeah. will do anything and everything to make sure my children are safe, are fed, they have shelter, you know, all the necessary needs for survival. It doesn't matter what mm. you are or who you are. So I can understand from the perspective of, say, a village or individual people, governments, I, no, I don't, <laughs> definitely not. So cross that one out. But for me, I do have a lot of people come up to me and they go, but why can't we just stop the villages or why can't we stop them and they shouldn't, how dare they do that? And it's like, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. Let's look at the bigger picture here as to mm. why someone would be actually doing that. And they're not necessarily thinking about, well, they're probably not thinking about the environment as such and that little mouse over there or the elephant or so forth. They're thinking about their three kids at home with their wife. Exactly. they're thinking about. And so how do I create all the necessary things for humans to survive? And if that means I need to go out and unfortunately work for the big government agencies or whoever it is that have the palm oil, then that's what we're going to do. And I believe that every single person here in Australia as well would do something very similar to protect their own family if it came down to it. If that's it really, right. Yeah. That's how, I mean, we were so naive on our first trip over there. We'd, we'd had some professional, like, kids' activity books done up all about palm oil. It was all, you know, along the mentality of, you know, boycott Tim Tams and all that sort of stuff, you know. Palm oil is bad. And then some of the parents of the kids in, in, in the village were really angry and we soon realised when we got there that it, it wasn't as simple as our mm. narrow-minded thoughts back, back here in Australia before we got there. I mean... Every mahook in the village owns a palm oil plantation. It is a palm oil plantation. There's no other tree in the village. It's all mm. palm oil. The kids live under palm oil trees. So it wasn't as easy as just saying, mm. don't use palm oil because it's their way of life and it's been their way of life for a long, long time. So it was more about education that was yes. key and, and I've seen a significant difference in the eight yeah. years that we've been there and not, not by anything we've done. I think the younger generation of those villages is starting to have a totally different perspective mm. to their parents. Yeah. I mean, when you think of they didn't realise that elephants weren't found in Australia, of course they're not going to understand and believe the impacts that palm oil have you know, like you just said, boycott the pack of Tim Tams or so forth like that. Yeah. However, they probably don't even know what a pack of Tim Tams is. And they, yeah, so it, it is really interesting to have chats with people about this and that. You can go deep in those conversations when it comes to why people do what they do. But when it comes down to it, it's for their own survival and it's for their own villages or, or yeah. And it's really unfortunate that the government, I don't know if this is true, but I did hear that when I was in Borneo a couple of years ago, I was there with my daughter and we were talking about the plantations and I heard that a lot of them are actually owned not even by Indonesia, by other countries because they need the water from Indonesia so they got rid of the palm oils from those countries because there's not enough water. Let's put it all in Indonesia. I think it's like owned, like 90% is owned by other countries and That's then right. let's hire the Indonesians to do yes. it for like two cents basically to yes. look after it yeah. and destroy yeah. the country at the same time. <laughs> That's right. So they're getting around the native title as well with that because yeah, they they're essentially just renting the the palm oil land off the off the mm. local people, which is really sad. I mean, mm. it's destroying their country and their culture and whatever else. But again, 
it's not just their problem. We create that demand. So mm. we're all part of the problem. And that's what's really, it's such a yeah multi-layered problem. Yeah. Oh. Very sad multi-layered all right Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think we have enough time to go into that one but yeah so Amanda for you what's next you've had some amazing journeys so far what's next where are we going to see you I don't know I don't know I guess it's funny because when I wrote Bob's book I could not relate at all to when he used to speak about Steve as a child and how much energy Steve had and you only had to look on the roof and there he was or up a tree if you couldn't find him or you may as well try to leash onto him because he just had that much energy. He was always disappearing. Now I've got a three-year-old who's got a lot of energy and I joke around with Bob saying, you know, I can relate to you now. I understand what that's like. So, yeah, for me, it's about, you know, teaching him and taking him along, which is why it's really important for me to take him up to Queen Island to the Turtle Rehab Centre next week because, Mm. I mean, he's really stoked. He doesn't know what to expect, but it's just lovely to start talking to him about why the turtles get sick and him understanding Mm. about the rubbish in the oceans and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, it's really cool to be able to share that with him. I can't wait to take him to Sumatra. That's my next um, thing. He's been once, but he was in my belly. So (laughs) he just probably doesn't remember that. But, yeah, it'll be lovely to share that with him and know Mm. that he'll have insight into all of that. Yeah. Don't know. Don't know don't know well I look forward to um seeing what's next for you when you go away and you meet Owen his energy and his enthusiasm he's five and a half you know we I think we underestimate these little people (laughs) Mm. as his mum said to me never underestimate a little person because they do have so much influence as well but he truly to right down to his core he just can't understand from a child's perspective why adults do what we do with nature and and so he's out there trying to educate the other little people to Mm. do the right thing but he's also inspiring the adults with his messages so I reckon you're really going to enjoy hanging out with Owen when you meet him yeah Yeah, that'll be cool he sounds like a really yeah really special little kid so yeah interesting to meet him but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, one thing, I would never write another book in my life. That's just a fact. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I would only do it for Bob because we were so close and we had that. It was just a really rare opportunity where mm. it just made sense that I was extracting all this information from him and I was able to put it into a book. And I don't know really how many people have read it or if it's a bestseller. We sort of never got that far. I think the disappointing part was it was never marketed in a way that suited him. We ended up doing our own tour when Mm. we came up to see you that time where we went, we used a bit of a book tour to talk about crocodile conservation in North Queensland. And one of our favourite book signings was at Fort Douglas where we talked a little bit about the book and told some stories about it and it became this great debate over crocodile management in Fort Douglas with the local people. And it was one of the most memorable, beautiful things that I remember as part of the book writing journey. So that was where his audience are those grassroots people in regional areas that have a lot of connection to the land. The way the book was marketed was sort of on the Today Show and sending him to Sydney to studios and all they wanted to talk about was the family rift and all of that sort of stuff. Mm, Um, Drama, yeah. It was just so not the right flavour for what the actual book is about. As you know, you read it, so it's a really personal insight into his life. And I guess probably the only thing I was really cranky with him about in the whole book writing process was if we got to the end of the writing process and up until that point he neglected to tell me that he'd ever been bitten by a venomous snake. So he denied it and denied it and denied it. And then I went to meet his friend Peter Haskins who writes a piece in the book which was his original adventure buddy and he said, did he tell you about the time he was bitten by the brown snake? And I said, no, but do tell me, Peter. I would love to hear this. So I went back to Bob and he goes, oh, you've dogged me in. All right, I'll tell you about it. He goes, I was just a bit embarrassed. So, um, yep. yeah, some funny moments, but I think, yeah, we extracted some really good stuff. I say to him all the time now, don't tell me any more stories because I'll be so cranky if I missed anything. Um, <laughs> so we're not allowed to talk about anything else now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'll tell you what, that man, he's got 20 lives. Mm, <laughs> like if it's not a snake or a crocodile, it's a hole and cement and something else. But, but even, you know what, it's just made me think about, I grew up just near Australia Zoo and back then it was when it was so tiny 
It was mm. so small, it would take two seconds to walk around. But that's how I grew up is with the small Australia Zoo with Bob there. And also like how it got to the point of Australia Zoo being where it is. I mean, yes, there was the part where Steve came in, but for him and the story in the book of him having to grow strawberries on the side just to be able to afford mm. to feed the animals and then, oh, and then this season we're going to have to do this because we didn't have enough money. And it's mm. all about his belief and the reasons why he wanted to have Australia Zoo and create it in the first place. But then the resilience he had to be able to keep it going and then Steve to take over and obviously to take it to where it is now. But it's, for me personally, it's that humble beginnings, which is so important because it's people like you and me, we Mm. don't wake up and have success. Mm. Like, I mean, success in itself is is everyone's individual um, meaning. But for me, it's like hearing about all the challenges he had to be able to get to a certain point, it made me go, okay, cool, this is all part of the journey. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Whoop, there's a hole, there's a big mountain. Yep, keep going, keep going. Don't give up. Oh, um, he said so many, like you, I didn't realise until we sat down and extracted all of these stories that he's had so many setbacks in his life and so many really difficult things to overcome. I mean, you know, grief and Mm. the loss of your child, the loss of your wife, the loss of so many things. And he's still standing and he's still trying. He's still putting himself out there to continue on. And I think he's amazing for that alone. And I think a good example of that was one of the characters in the book, the Akinero family. So I'd only heard about them by working at Australia Zoo, they had a crocodile there called Akko and we were always taught how important that crocodile was and how special that family were to the Irwin family. And so when I rang him to interview him for the book, he basically hung up on me and said, <laughs> I have no interest in talking to media or something along those lines. And I rang Bob back and said, oh, no, he doesn't talk to me. What do I do? And so he rang in and said, no, she's all good. She's a mate of mine. I really want you to talk to her. So we actually took Bob up there for the first time, I think, in 20 years, which was back to the original crocodile catching property where they started with their first permit and he built Steve the little lean-to. as one of the most emotional experiences of my entire life, sitting in the back of the car, in the back of the four-wheel drive, with Stephen Akinero and Bob in the front seat as we drove back to the lean-to that Bob built for Steve all those years ago, which he didn't realise Stephen Akinero had kept even though this cyclone had knocked it down, he kept all of it intact. And the tears running down the faces of these grown men. And then that night they put on the old videos and we watched them and Bob has never seen them. And I was sitting on the lounge thinking, I don't deserve to be here. Like this is this is too much, you know, like I'm sitting here experiencing this going back in time with these two amazing people. And Steve was in these videos talking to his dad, the videos he made back in the day. He was saying, Dad, watch this. He's hanging it up in the tree. So, I mean, that was, oh, I still get goosebumps thinking about I've got goosebumps. (laughs) What that was like and then trying to put that into words or whatever. So I realised the best thing to do was not to change it at all, just to take Stephen Akinero's memory and transcribe it as he said it, take Bob's memory, transcribe it as he said it and leave it there because it was just so beautifully told for me as it was. Mm. And it was, it really is one of the most amazing books I've read. The stories involved in it, honestly, for everyone listening, if you do not have this book, then you need to track it down because I've read it twice and now now I'm going to go read it again (laughs) (laughs) because I want to hear the stories again. But every single person, if you have any love of nature in any form, you have to read it. It really is beautiful. And just right then when you said that Steve was talking to the cameras and, you know, hey, Dad, and and Bob hasn't actually seen them, Mm. I can only imagine, like I had full body goosebumps and I can only imagine how that felt for you to sit there. But what an honour to experience that. Um, Oh, it, it really was. And I think through the camaraderie between the two, it was so insightful because I've always suspected Bob and Steve were very similar. So the the Steve you saw on TV, the gregarious, outgoing guy, was not actually who he was. He's much like Bob. He really didn't like doing that and he really didn't feel comfortable with people. Bob always says, I'm not a people person. And I don't believe that's true. I think he's fantastic with people, but I think what he means is he doesn't actually read people all that well. He doesn't understand the dynamic between people. He understands the dynamic between people and humans, uh, people and animals, but he really 
just for prefers to be on his own in a quiet mm. with a cup of tea. I mean, he doesn't drink as well. That's another really beautiful thing about going bush is there's no alcohol. It's just a natural high. Everyone getting together, a bunch of grown men or whatever, sitting around the fire. So it was great to be able to get an insight into what of those camps would have been like with Bob and Steve where they're making fun of each other. And there was one video where Bob was assembling a crop trap and Steve pulled the trap, the net closed on him. And he's in there with maggots. He's going, oh, no, he's like, I'm in here with all this live rice. He was calling them maggots. So that was really funny to sort of see some of those antics play out because I'd imagine that's what it would have been like. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, really, really special. I mean, I can't watch my son, Flynn, the other day I put on, it was Steve's anniversary of his death, and I said mm. to Flynn, let's watch a Steve Irwin video. And he hadn't watched one before, and he was enthralled, you know. But I still can't watch him without crying because I'm taking back those moments and I feel so incredibly humbled to have experienced that. And, I mean, we got to the end of the book writing process and Judy, Rob's wife, were going through, they really only have a handful of photos, family photos have been lost to other family members over the years and whatnot. So it was a scramble to get the photos that we did get for the book. Mm. We were going through an old bag of paper that Judy had at home and there was a photo frame and I undid the back of the frame and this letter fell out which was a letter Steve had written to his father at 32 years old which Bob doesn't ever remember seeing and it said basically thank you for everything you've done and we ended up putting that on the front page of the of the Mm. book which was just the most beautiful note for our son to write to his father and for us to read when we were sitting down putting the final touches on the book into I just I, I begged him please let me share that like just oh my please, gosh. because it depicts the relationship so beautifully what an amazing message it was like Steve just had to give him that little bit of encouragement or that little bit it's good dad like put that out and you know the universe delivers what we need at the time and how weird that you just found that letter like that That's, yeah that Actually, is I'm gonna I'm gonna read it so I've yes. got the book sitting here I'm gonna be right He says, Dear Mum and Dad, probably one of the most unfortunate things in a bloke's life is that it takes over 30 years to realise how essential you have been to build my character, my ethics and most importantly, my happiness. At 32, I'm finally starting to figure it out. In good times and in bad, you were there. Your strength and endurance to raise me will not go unrewarded. My love for you is my strength. For the rest of my life, I will reflect on the unbelievably great times we've shared and will continue to share. You're my best friend. Thank you, Steve. Beautiful. Like, remarkable. It was remarkable. Beautiful. Wow. Now, if that doesn't motivate you to buy the book, (laughs) (laughs) come on, everyone. You need to read this book. It's amazing. Amanda, I have to thank you so much for talking to us and reminding us about the amazing work that you got to bring to us or the amazing stories you got to bring to us because I think it's so special you know you've got Bob Bob who's you know what he's in his 70s as you were in your 20s and here you are tropesing along next to him and going on these amazing journeys to be able to give us his story and it really is a remarkable story so thank you you're welcome I mean it was it was an unlikely duo that we were we were on the road it was yeah, looking back now, I think, oh, thank you. I mean, he could have been anybody. But, yeah, I remember him turning to me in the car and get York once and said, what are you doing this for? Basically, what's wrong with you? Why do you want to travel around with a grumpy old, wrinkly old 70-year-old that he felt like he had nothing to offer? And I said, why have I got something to be worried about? So, yeah, looking back, yeah, it's strange, but it worked and it was lovely and some of the best news of my life. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I don't think there's anything else that I can end in that apart from just (laughs) literally telling everyone, please go and read the book. And if people want to connect with you, Amanda, where can everyone find you? Do you have Instagram? Yeah, I've got Instagram. My account's Our World Treasures, which are named after all the world treasures we met on the road. So I think they're all world treasures. You're one of them, Jodie, and it's really great to see what you're doing with your platform now and all the educational stuff you're doing because that's Thank you. the most important thing we can do. So I wish you all the best. Yeah, well, I have to say that you and Bob and that journey, like you said, you know, connecting everyone has inspired me to continue on because it is quite a a tiring and can be a very heartbreaking job. You know, even when we work for ourselves, it's still really heartbreaking at times, but it's Mm -hmm. very rewarding and motivating when we meet other people like yourself to inspire us to keep going because regardless of whether we see a change, 
change is happening. And it may only just be in the mindset of somebody who may go home and have a chat over, you know, dinner with the family. And right then and there, there's curiosity, there's questions, there's aha moments. And I think for me, when I dropped the attachment of needing to know what kind of change I'm making, you know, that was more my ego jumping in there. And now I just have faith that change is happening. And I believe that it only takes ourselves to create a change at home. And then together, collectively, we are changing the world. And whether it's this someone listening to this podcast or reading Bob's book or having a chat with yourself in, you know, Port Douglas, for example, it's happening. And I think just having faith in that and not concentrating on seeing the negative side of what the media wants to portray with wildlife and nature and so forth. But yeah, so here in North Queensland, I love the beautiful people who are doing amazing work for our wildlife and habitats and ecosystems. So I hope to see you again really soon up here, by the way, Amanda. Yeah, I hope so. My dreams to move up there. I love it up there. I mean, I'm in Brisbane at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah, not not my scene, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think... I think you're so right with what you just said too. When I first started out, the wildlife network, which is small, was so divided. You had carers that didn't talk to each other. Nobody, everyone was trying to save the world in their own little bubble. Mm. And I don't know if you feel this too, there's such a shift now in people collaborating Mm -hmm. and working together. And I think we're going to have a much better outcome. So that's where my Mm. hope comes from is to see, and I say all of you, because I feel that, especially in that final Queensland little bubble, it's so collaborative now and it's Mm. so nice. So I hope that all continues and you all keep working together and helping each other. Definitely. It's beautiful. I agree. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having a cup of tea. I I finished my cup of tea now. (laughs) I think it's nearly time for my kids to come home. So thank you so much for the chat. I really, really enjoyed it. And hopefully everyone else enjoyed this wild chat too. So Amanda, we'll connect with you on Instagram. I'll put some details in the podcast notes so people can find you. Also, I'll put Bob's book, of course, there as well. People can click on that and it can take you directly to purchase that book and you want to read it because it's amazing. So again, Or hear it. It's an audio book now too. Oh, It's quite interesting. The guy whose voice is reading it is beautiful. It's really oh, nice. Oh, is it? Yeah. I Ooh. quite like we put that on when we do long distances in the car. It's, oh, um, I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna I'm going to download. I'll download that today because I was just thinking I do have a busy schedule in the next couple of weeks. I do need an audio book. So that's it. I'm going to be doing that. (laughs) Amazing. All right. right, Thank you so much. Thanks, Amanda. See you soon. Bye. Wow, how was that wild chat with Amanda French? I certainly enjoyed having a chat to her and finding out a little bit more about her journey of being able to write Bob Irwin's book. Now, if you would like to get in contact with Amanda, I have left some information in the podcast notes for you. Or if you want to read Bob's book, which I highly, highly recommend that everybody read because this is where Australia Zoo started from, is from Bob Irwin and his amazing story. It is called The Last Crocodile Hunter, A Father and Son Legacy. Now be warned, it will have you in tears, it will have you laughing, it will have you gasping and probably saying he did what? But it is an amazing story. And I tell you what, Amanda, what a beautiful job she had of documenting that and being able to travel with Bob to hear all the stories and put it all into this beautiful book. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you guys on the next Wild Chat. <music>